We're going to be reading from Revelation 14, 1 through 5, starting in verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ City Church. My name is Justin. So it's fall. Feels like fall. Um, and as per usual, I want to start with a question, but I'm not going to ask you to turn to your neighbor so introverts can breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, <clears throat> but the question that I just want you to think about is, when you were a kid, what did you think life would look like as an adult? All right, when you were a kid, what did you think life would look like as an adult? More independence, more control, more freedom to do whatever you pleased. Uh, maybe you thought, you know, there, you'd be married, or you'd have a, a well-paying and fulfilling job, uh, kids, a house. And now how does that differ from what life actually looks like now that you're an adult or more of an adult? The bills, yeah. This, this cartoon, this comic from Calvin and Hobbes is, has been resonating with me recently. How old do you have to be before you know what's going on? <laughs> what are the things that have exceeded your expectations? And I hope there have been some. And then where have you been disappointed? Friends who've fallen away or work as a grind or seemingly out of reach uh, instead of a joy? your health, maybe your, your body betraying you, uh, or to zoom out, the, the confusion and the chaos that's all around us, it's ever-present whenever we look, it seems when we look at the world or we check the news. Uh, don't you think we should have made more progress as a human race, you know, combating poverty or human trafficking or just better caring for one another? Today is the first day of the last quarter of 2017. And so I wonder... Does this year look like what you thought it would look like? Does life look like what you had hoped it would look like for yourself, for your family, for this church, for our city, and for our world? I want you to hold on to that thought. If you're just joining us, you may have gathered we're in the middle of a series, halfway through our six-week series on the book of Revelation. And today, uh, I'm going to talk about dragons, beasts, lambs, and the long game. So this is going to be fun. Uh, now, I don't know how your small groups are going, but I've really enjoyed the conversations that my small groups have been having around Revelation these last few weeks. And one of the things I was reminded of this past week as we were, we were talking through and trying to unpack some of the, the weird and wacky imagery is that there's a lot that's different between the Christians of the first century and us in the 21st century. Now, Matthew and I have both said this in the, the first few weeks of this series, but let me offer this as a reminder. Revelation, it can seem very opaque and very confusing for us, but it was actually pretty clear for the early church. John, the author, was not creating a veiled and obscure riddle 
but rather issuing a message of hope and comfort and clarity to the people of God in troubled times, using a genre that's called apocalyptic that would have been very familiar to his audience. The difficulty comes in interpreting for us because of the distance that we have from the original audience. We're separated by half a world, the cultural context that's half a world away, and a span of over 2,000 years. But there's much that is the same. There's much that was said to the early church that holds true for us in the current church. And so I'm going to try to unpack a little bit of it uh, so that we can, I hope, hear and take to heart the message God was speaking to them and maybe, maybe speaking to us today. And one of the paradigms that we've used the last few weeks uh, as we've tried to tackle this challenging and fascinating and at times disturbing book, it involves asking two questions. First, what did the text mean for them, the original hearers? And in particular, how was it good news for them? And then we ask, what does it mean for us? And in particular, how is it good news for us? And so those are uh, some of the guiding questions that we'll use this morning as well. And the reading we heard earlier was from the first few verses of Revelation 14. And we'll come back to that. But it's important for us to look first at chapters 12 and 13. And so we're going to start there. This is how Revelation 12 begins. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And the child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. So, what did this mean for the original audience? We're, let's start with the easy part, all right? It's going to be question and answer. Pop quiz. Who was the son who was born? The one who would rule the nations. Jesus, right. Psalm 2 is, is the so-called royal psalm that's referenced here. It's, it's the one who would rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And John saw this as an Old Testament reference to Jesus. Question number two, who's the dragon? The devil, Satan, the enemy, the embodiment of evil, the adversary of God. Really straightforward. See, you are experts already. Question number three, who was the woman? Any guesses? Mary, it's a good guess. The church. the church? Israel? Yeah, so sometimes, so quite often, you might, it might seem logical that the person who gave birth to Jesus was Mary, and that's traditional Catholic interpretation. Um, but let me ask you this. Let me put it this way. If the woman had a crown of 50 stars, who might she represent? America. America. So it's more likely, for this reason, that the woman who had a crown of 12 stars for 12 tribes represents Israel, and also by implication the people of God. So Jesus came out of, Jesus was born out of the people of God. The devil sought to destroy him at his birth. You, you might remember the, the story uh, of the infanticide that King Herod tried to enact to kill um, the long-awaited king that the Magi had told him of. And then we kind of jump forward uh, real quick to Jesus' ascension where he's snatched away and taken up to God and, and to his throne. And as a heads-up uh, time in apocalyptic literature, is a pretty flexible and fluid and sometimes usually symbolic concept, just as numbers and pictures are. And so what we have here at the beginning of chapter 12 is an imaginative retelling of Jesus' life. It's a revealing, it's a revelation 
of what was going on in the spiritual realm while the events that we read about in the four Gospels are taking place. Okay? So after Jesus was taken up into heaven, the woman, the people of God, the flee into the wilderness during the time of testing. Now, you may be wondering about the 1260 days. We had a really fun uh, sermon preparation meeting uh, to just, Matthew was just asking me all the questions about what this means. So, in, um, in, the, in the Jewish tradition, sort of, a, a typical month is like 30 days. So, 1260 days would be 42 months or three and a half years, okay? Remember those? 42, 42 months or three and a half years. And that was, um, in apocalyptic literature, it was a symbolic for a time of testing and tribulation for the people of God. All right, so we'll see this again. You can see it in Daniel 7. You can see it in Daniel 12 as well. And we'll see it again later in, in uh, this morning's passages. So goes into the wilderness for a time of, of testing. In the rest of Revelation 12, John sees a vision of war in the heavens between Satan and his minions, the, his, not like the yellow things, <laughs> but like his evil followers. And the angel Michael who is sort of the patron guardian of Israel. Um, and again, you'll see that in other apocalyptic literature, including the book of Daniel. And Satan is defeated, cast down from the heavens. And then it says in uh, chapter 12, verse 17, the dragon was enraged at the woman, whom he couldn't harm, remember. And he went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So question four, who do we think they are? The offspring of the people of Israel the ones who keep God's commands and cling to their testimony about Jesus. Church, right? Those who follow in the tra tradition and the line of the people of God. And so what might John be saying to the early church? Maybe it's as simple as, hey, heads up, don't be surprised when you experience trials and, and tribulations and difficulty and persecution. The enemy is, is out to get you. The enemy is trying to defeat you. Remember, the context that John is writing into is that some Christians were experiencing persecution, but all of them were experiencing pressure to conform to the culture of the day, which glorified Rome and idolized the emperor. And I'll come back to those two pressures, to glorify Rome and idolize the emperor. I'll come back to them in a moment. So that's Revelation 12. See, we're just moving through this clip. Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, we meet two beasts. One that comes out of the sea and one that comes from the land. The sea beast, John tells us, had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name. It resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, a mouth like that of a lion. The, dra the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months, symbolic time of trial and testing. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, a nation. And the land beast on the hand came out of the earth. It was uh, like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. We'll come back to that later. Now, what did these beasts mean for the original hearers? Let me mention at least three things that probably would have come to mind for them. First, they would have thought of two creatures from Jewish mythology called Leviathan and Behemoth. 
Leviathan and Behemoth. If you've read the book of Job, or if you have any affinity for fantasy books or games, you will recognize names. Leviathan and Behemoth. They represented the strength and power of creation. Leviathan to dominate the sea, and Behemoth to dominate the land. But the early church would also have known that the beasts seen in John's vision are gross, misshapen parodies of the great and majestic creatures described in mythology. These are warped mutations. Right? And more importantly, John's listeners would, would have known that the context in which Leviathan and Behemoth are mentioned in Job is when God reminds Job that for all their power and strength, for all of their, intimidating, all of their power to intimidate, God is the one who tamed them. God is the one who has power over them. God is still sovereign. Whatever these beasts are and whatever they represent, God is stronger still. Second thing, who did we hear about last week, for those who were here? This is encouraging. <laughs> An animal, lion, and the slain lamb, the lion who is the lamb. That's also who the audience of Revelation would have just heard about, right? But not like a week ago, but just a few moments ago, because they would have read the letter in one sitting. And so let's compare and contrast. The beast is crowned, and the lamb is crowned. The beast has a blasphemous name. The lamb has a holy name. The beast has the power and throne and authority and is the reflection of the devil. And the lamb has the power, the throne, the authority, and as the reflection of God. The beast, it says, was wounded and yet alive. The lamb, we know, was wounded and yet lives. The beast causes people to worship Satan. The lamb causes people to worship God. The beast seeks people from every tribe, people, language, and nation. That may sound familiar because the lamb also seeks people from every tribe, people, language, and nation. But the beast inflicts suffering on others, whereas the lamb suffers on behalf of others. The beast's purpose is to enslave, and lamb's purpose is to set free. And so again, the beast is the, the polar opposite, right, of the lamb. The beast, whoever it is and whatever it represents, is a warped and twisted mutation, not just of Leviathan, but of the majesty and power and love of Jesus. Where Jesus is loving, the beast is manipulative. Where Jesus raises up others, the beast crushes them for its own purposes. Where Jesus seeks to free a diverse people, the beast desires only to enslave them. The third thing that they might have thought about, listen to this, this is from Daniel 7. Daniel wrote, In my vision at night I looked. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. The second looked like a bear. The third looked like a leopard. The fourth was terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It had ten horns. Did you notice? It's the same animals. It's the same animals that are referenced. A lion, a bear, a leopard. Again, though, that the sea beast that John sees in Revelation is, is, is not separate beasts, but like a a Frankenstein-like splicing experiment, a warped mutation. In Daniel, the four beasts represented four, four different empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Median Empire, the Persian Empire, and then probably the Greek Empire. And so, so John's audience might have thought, you know, a beast from the sea, okay. 
lion, a bear, a leopard, there's horns. Remember, horns are a symbol of power. The beasts represent empires that are in opposition to Christ, that are persecuting his followers. What's the empire now that's crushing us and persecuting us and opposing Christ? For them, it was Rome. But not just Rome. Rome as a symbol itself. Scott Daniels would describe it. Rome would be a, as a symbol of the dark power of pagan empire claiming to be eternal. Its ruler claiming to be a god. Its politic demanding complete allegiance from its citizens. That's how empire is. That's what empire does and has done throughout time and space. Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome, France, Russia, Britain, and even our own country. Now, I'm tremendously grateful to be an American citizen, and I will fulfill whatever civic duties are asked of me, but my citizenship lies first and foremost in heaven. I pledge allegiance before all else to Jesus Christ. Being a follower of Jesus means that we're called to be and to become more like him. Understanding our identity is rooted in the communal, self-giving, sacrificial love of the divine trinity. We're called to grow in love and mercy and grace and holiness and also to grow in our intolerance of injustice and oppression and sin, both around us and in us. Being a citizen of the kingdom of God, being an ambassador of the gospel means that the priorities of God must supersede the pressures of the world. Priorities of God must supersede the pressures of the world. That means, for instance, that the American dream is not our motivating vision. Our motivating vision is may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as in heaven, in me and through me. That means that we cannot simply shrug our shoulders at the outrageous inequality and poverty in our country or the lingering racism in our systems and structures or the besetting sins that entangle us so easily and perhaps have been so long a part of our lives that we may wonder if it's even worth fighting. So the call of God's kingdom is always onward and upward. Or as John would put it, in the face of the threats of empire, don't stand up for the oppressed. Don't speak up for the marginalized. Don't protest injustice. Don't be cognizant of how you're spending your time or your money. Don't worry about what you're doing with your body. Don't live a holy life. Don't wake up. John would say this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Patient endurance and faithfulness. But let's not forget there's another beast the land beast. John tells us beginning in verse 12 that this beast performed great signs and deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the first beast. All who refused to worship the image could be killed. This beast also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their forehead so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So if the first beast, the sea beast, was Rome, this second beast was the imperial religion. It was the thing that led people to worship the first beast. 
led people to worship the emperor as a god and the empire as a source of life and peace and stability. And it left a mark. Now, you may have heard talk of the mark of the beast. A long time ago, I read a novel by uh, Christian author Frank Peretti. It's called The Oath. Uh, it's a fiction book. I really actually enjoyed it, at least when I read it 20 years ago. And it's, uh, but it's set in a mining town, right? In a rural mining town where the inhabitants are hiding a terrible secret. And the book used this, this mark of the beast concept as a motif. Um, in the book, the mark was a literal like black rash that, that inf- afflicted anyone uh, who was in on the secret, and it grew as, as they continued to keep the secret. But in Revelation, what's the mark? Well, let's start where the mark is left, on the right hand or on the forehead. Why the right hand and the forehead? Well, let's turn to the Old Testament again. Remember, the book of Revelation is full of references to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 8. It's one of the first passages Jewish people would learn. It's called the Shema. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, uh, with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Jewish people to this day still use what are called tefillin, little scrolls with these commandments on them, and they put them in little boxes, and then they bind them to their hands and to their foreheads especially when they pray. I think we have one more image. On their hands and their foreheads. In Revelation 7, an angel says that a seal will be placed on the foreheads of the servants of our God. That's where your truth is. And then Justin read earlier from chapter 14 where it says the people of God had a name, had the name of the lamb and his father written on their foreheads. The, the, the mark, the seal, is what defines our lives. And again, it's about loyalty. It's about allegiance to God or to the beast. John was laying it out in stark terms. Is your life marked by God or by another loyalty? By the holy trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit or by the counterfeit trinity of dragon and beasts? And where the call earlier was for patient endurance and faithfulness in the face of persecution and the pressure to conform, the call now is for wisdom. John says, let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of of a man, and that number is 666. I'm sure everyone's aware of the mythology uh, behind this number, or at least has heard of it. Um, It's the number of the beast. Some would say the Antichrist. And it's sort of become a taboo number, right? Like a superstition even, like the number 13. But remember, it meant something for the original audience too. And so in the ancient world, there was a practice called gematria, where alphabetical letters were assigned uh, different numerical values, and then people would try to work out a correlation between different numbers. Oh, we can, we can put that slide down for now because I don't know that you'll be able to read it anyway from the back. Um, but it's like when, when, I don't know if you did this as a kid, but when, when we were kids, we'd kind of do like a code, you know, A equals 1, B equals 2, and so on. 
And in middle school, I don't remember the details of this, but it was something like you add up the numbers of your name and the number of your crush's name, and then it's, there's some formula as to whether or not your crush is going to like you back. <laughs> Anyone else? Some sly nods because people don't want to put their hands up. And so, you know, I would add up my numbers, J is uh, 10, U is 21, S is 19, and so on, and uh, my total was like 93 or something. And then I added up my crush's name, and her name was Rachel, so R equals 18, A equals 1, C equals 3, and so on, and then I don't remember how the code worked, but she never liked me back. <laughs> so it turns out that that isn't a modern practice goes back hundreds and even thousands of years. Some ancient graffiti that was found in the ruins of the city of Pompeii said, I love the girl whose number is 545. <laughs> Just carrying in the long line of <laughs> romantic nerds. <laughs> See, John was, he was using a device. Right? He's done this over and over again. He uses a device that's familiar to his readers, his listeners, in order to give them counsel in troubled times. And I hope you're starting to get a, a grip on like how apocalyptic literature works. Time is symbolic of something. Imagery, pictures are symbolic. Numbers are symbolic. Twelve, right? Twelve and its multiples often represent the people of God. Seven and its multiples often represent perfection. You may remember Jesus says we should forgive 70 times seven times. It means absolute and utter forgiveness. Not that you're supposed to keep count of like, okay, now I got to 490 times, I can stop. And the number six, one short of seven, would represent imperfection. Not quite the real thing. So 666 represents that which falls short, not once, but three times. And if John had just talked about the Roman Empire, the imperial cult, and emperor worship, it would not have taken a genius for them to figure out who 666 was referring to. Uh, I had this slide, I, I don't know that it's super legible, but Michael Gorman, who's a, a scholar and a theologian, he goes through and he writes and explains that many scholars today believe that the number is a reference to the emperor Nero. It's a number as a man. Because the, the Hebrew uh, practice of gematria, they would assign numbers to each letter. And so Nero Caesar in Hebrew would add up to 666. In some versions, it's 616, because if you take off one of the N's, which you can do in Hebrew, trust me, you can do that, it's 616. Some ancient uh, manuscripts also say 616 instead of 666. But again, just as Rome isn't just Rome, but any empire, and just as the imperial religion isn't just any uh, just isn't just the imperial religion, but any counterfeit religiosity that dis deceives and leads to death rather than to God and life. So also Nero isn't just Nero, but anything that is anti-Christ. Okay, now you can, you can look for a person. But I think what John is saying is figure out what is counter to Christ and have nothing to do with it. Use wisdom to discern what is counter to Christ what is opposite of the love of God, and don't fall for it. So what do you think is antichrist in our day? In other words, what are the things that lead us away from God or that make us less like Jesus? Some would say it's the military-industrial complex. Some would say it's commercialized religion. Some would say it's rampant individualism. 
or let me bring it down to a personal level as well. What are the temptations in your life? Those things that stifle the work of the Spirit by causing you fear or anxiety? The things that distract you from the gracious and unforced way of Jesus? The things that take your eyes off of God and His sure and steadfast love for you? What are the things that promise you life but deliver only death? Quick fixes, cheap grace, instant gratification. And let me draw things, begin to draw things to a close by coming back to Revelation 14 where we began. John writes, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. See, in spite of the dominance of the land and the sea by the beasts and the dragon, the Lamb still holds the high ground. I love that image. And with him, 144,000, a complete company, 12 times 12,000, representing the people of God. And they had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. They were marked by their obedience to the great commandment, to love God, and by their allegiance to Jesus. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peal of thunder. And the sound I heard was like that of, of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Only those who knew their shepherd's voice. Only those who knew their master's voice. These are those who did not defile themselves with women for they remained virgins. Now, this doesn't mean that the chosen people are all men, and nor is it a glorification of celibacy. Right? It symbolizes two things. First, faithfulness to God. So next week we'll hear a little more about the harlot who symbolizes Rome. And so in that context, and given today's text about faithfulness, it's about not defiling yourself with divided loyalties. They didn't defile themselves by serving two masters, by bending the knee to two rulers. And second, in the Old Testament, there was a practice for soldiers about to go off to war to refrain from sexual intercourse so that they would focus their energy. And so it's about readiness. It's about wisdom. It's about courage. It's about being prepared. It's about being alert. It says they follow the lamb wherever he goes. This is a picture of Jesus and his elite troops, his chosen few, his mighty warriors. I was sorely tempted to make a joke about SEAL Team 6 and Lamb Team 6, but I'm going to refrain. <laughs> this is a picture of the church of God, body of Christ, the spirit-filled community that's gathering in worship with and to their Lord, their captain and their king, because there is no neutral ground in the spiritual battle. And there is no uncontested ground either. The Apostle Paul reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So even though we may be opposed by other people, and though we may be threatened by other people, and though other people may try to distract us or dissuade us from being agents of the good news, we see the bigger picture. We see the long game. God is at work. And so is the enemy. And so what does this mean for us? This is what Archbishop Oscar Romero said, the church 
with its message, with its word, will meet a thousand obstacles. Just as the river encounters boulders, rocks, and chasms, no matter, the river carries a promise. I will be with you to the end of the ages, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the will of the Lord. That's the grand narrative. That's the big picture. But beginning with the end in mind, which is what our sermon series is titled, beginning with the end in mind is about translating those grand narratives, the cosmic realities, into our everyday realities. It's about seeing the tiny dots that make up the broad swaths. It's about seeing those little decisions that make up the course and the direction of our lives. I would propose that what lies before us is what lay before the early church, what lies before all people at every moment, and that is a choice. Will you pledge allegiance to Jesus and his life-giving kingdom or to some other empire? Will you be counted among the wheat or the chaff, the wheat or the weeds, the sheep or the goats? You'll become like the one you follow, and so that, will that be the lamb? who sacrifices himself so that others may be free, welcoming the stranger, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, healing the sick? Or will it be the beast who devours and manipulates and uses others for his own advancement, neglecting the poor and the needy, the marginalized and the oppressed? It's a choice that is set before us every moment of every day. The same one that God offered the people of Israel thousands of years ago in Deuteronomy 13. He said, see, I set before you today Life and prosperity, death and destruction. Now choose life. Choose life. So that you and your children may live, then you may love the Lord your God and listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For some people here, that choice, it's a big one. It's choosing to shift the entire orientation of your life back toward Jesus. Scrawling the name of Jesus across your brow instead of whatever else is written there right now. Setting the cross of Jesus and the victory he won as your north star, as your defining event. That requires courage. For others, that choice will be a recommitment in the little things. In the everyday decisions that constitute the fabric of our lives. But for all of us, the, the choices will impact how we, you know, how we spend our money and our, our time and our energy. They will uh, affect who we hang out with and what we do with them. They'll determine who defines what is important to us and who we are, both pu in public and in private and online. The choice can seem stark, too stark even. Right? We may prefer to shy away from bold decisions or clear lines in the sand, and that's not always a bad thing. But when it comes to choosing God or something else, when it comes to choosing the gospel or something else, when it comes to choosing the kingdom of heaven or something else, when it comes to choosing the love and grace and joy and peace of the Spirit or something else, well, I would be remiss if I challenged you to any less. In a moment, we're going to take communion together something we do every week here at Christ City Church as a reminder of what Christ has done for us. The bread we'll give you represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. And the juice that you'll dip the bread into represents his blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins and the redemption of our souls. And as we take his body and blood, 
we're not just reminded of what Christ has done for us, but we're also reminded of who we are. We are the body of Christ. We are called to be broken and poured out so that the broken places of the world might be made whole. We are called to be the agents of God's spirit so that the dead places of the world might come back to life. But before we do that, I wanna give us some time to contemplate the choice and the choices before us. It's really hard to sit still. It's really hard to create space in your life to listen and to think. And so to help us do that, I want to play a song that I've been listening to it for the last few weeks. I think it encapsulates the message uh, for today. It comes from a church in New Zealand. The, search, the song is called Kiakaha. It's Maori. It means be strong. And the chorus goes, Kiakaha, Kiamaia, Kiamana, Wanui, which means be strong, be steadfast, and be willing. The call of John the Divine in Revelation was for the church of God to be faithful, to endure patiently, and to make wise choices. Kiakaha, Kiamaia, Kiamana, Wanui. From the benediction, I wanted to read a it's a prayer, I think, a poem in some ways. Poem for the long view by Bishop Kenneth Untenor. It says, it helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that's the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. And so God, it is my prayer, it is our prayer that as we go out from this place that we would be faithful and that we would endure patiently and that your spirit would give us the wisdom to discern and make wise choices. We would see you and see your call, see to hear the song of your spirit and follow in your footsteps. And so we go, God, we go out from this place, agents of your kingdom, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.